Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Walter Longo is a fasting and longevity researcher, the Edna M. Jones Professor of Gerontology and Biological Sciences at the University of Southern California, and the author of The Longevity Diet. He also developed Prolon, a fasting-mimicking diet that is pretty popular here at Goop. Well, I've gotten to chat with Walter Longo on the podcast before. At our last Ingoop Health Wellness Summit, I got to sit down with him again and really drill in to all the components of fasting and what's the most effective form of it. Longo taught us about 16 eight-hour fasting, 5-2 fasting, and the fasting-mimicking diet. He broke down the science behind it all and his research, which is fascinating. We talked about autophagy, biohacking, how fasting may be beneficial for preventing diseases of aging, and much more. I think it's, it's uh, important to be well-nourished, but uh, try to get as, as close as possible to the ideal weight and, you know, and take your time doing it. it, it there's, it's not a race. Okay, let's get to my chat with Walter Longo. So, Walter, to start, so what constitutes fasting? I know there are a million variations of it at this point. So what is it? And what do you think is the most effective form of it? Yeah, so the most popular one is something called 16-8, in which you fast for 16 hours and and you eat uh, for for eight hours. And then uh, there's something called 5-2, in which you fast uh, a couple of days a week and you eat the rest of the time. And then what we've been working on, which is uh, we call the fasting mimicking diet, and something that you do maybe three times a year on average in the last five days, And we moved away from water-only fasting into ingredients that mimic fasting while keeping the person safe. And also, the attempt was always to make it as easy as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, the 16-8, clearly there's advantages. For example, you know, weight loss is one of it. Improvement of markers of whether it's cholesterol or or blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is that if you look at the... um, uh, long-term data, and most people have not heard this part, unfortunately. For example, people that skip breakfast, they tend to have a shorter lifespan, mm-hmm. and they tend to have a higher cardiovascular disease. And also, gallstone formation goes up you know, about twofold in those that consistently fast for more than 14, 15 hours a day. So then the daily recommendation is uh, keep it 12 hours on, 12 hours off in the United States now, uh, most people eat for about 15.2 hours, I think, is the average. Mm-hmm. So that should be brought back to 12 hours. And that's very safe. There's really nothing negative uh, that we've ever seen, either at the clinical level or the epidemiological level. So 12 hours, 8 a.m., 8 p.m., 7 a.m., 7 p.m., and you, know, you just have to adjust a few things to, to get there. 
And then, as I mentioned earlier, the fasting making diet, we really, you know, I, I've been working on this for 25 years. And I think after all this time, we came up with this, uh, I, this uh, intervention based on lots and lots of data and what I call five pillars of longevity. And we feel that, uh, you know, doing this fasting making diet three times a year or so is clearly beneficial. Of course, we try to do the, everything based on uh, preclinical and clinical data, including clinical studies that we've done at USC. And, and now all over the world, we have, I think, 42 clinical trials ongoing right now in in many, many universities uh, around the world. So in your, you think the ideal state, and we'll talk about diet in a minute, but is 12 hours of eating, 12 hours of not eating, and then doing a fasting mimicking diet for five days a few times a year. And I know for some people, they do it, particularly if they're potentially diabetic or pre-diabetic, they might do it with more regularity and frequency. Yeah, so now we have, I think, three clinical trials on diabetes and fasting and prolon and the fasting making diet. In the case of, of a diabetic, they're doing it once a month. Mm-hmm. So they do it five days a month and probably until hopefully the, the signs of the insulin resistance and the other symptoms of diabetes go away. I'm not saying that we know that yet, but certainly in the clinical trial that we did finish, the pre-diabetic subjects went back to a normal state. So or in the great majority of people that were pre-diabetic, so people that had high HbA1c, high fasting glucose, most of them return to a normal state. Mm-hmm. So now the hope is in the diabetes trial, we'll see the same and we'll see, especially the ones that are in the early stages of that diabetes moving back to a normal state. So what's the biological foundation? I mean, a, a lot of people, I guess, point to the biological foundation of fasting, that food was not ever available to us and should not be available to us in the same way. Is that the foundation of your research or do you think that's overblown? No, I think that, you know, if you look at religions, but if you look at the past of almost any organism, there is long periods of starvation, right? So you, we used to have food most of the time or lots of the time and then not have food other times. And so probably since I, 100 years ago or so, where it's the first time for any organism, by the way, any organism that we are constantly exposed to food, mm-hmm. no breaks. And so... Now we're starting to believe that maybe the, the, starva- the fasting periods were a moment where you get rid of all the, the sort of junk that was accumulated. And this we know very clearly from working animals. We're not sure uh, from people, but stem cells are turned on. Mm-hmm. And then when you refeed, the stem cells now can give rise to regenerate all the components that have been eliminated. For example we see that a cycle of a fasting-mimicking diet in a mouse is as effective as a cycle of chemotherapy in killing cancer cells. Right? So this is how powerful it is. And so the, at least the speculation is that was it always there to get rid of, let's say, autoimmune cells, to get rid of cancer cells, to get rid of all kinds of dysfunctional cells? And now we get rid of it, and all these things are accumulating, and there is never a moment to remove junk and replace it with new components. And that's the process of autophagy, right? Well, autophagy is actually a, a small part of this, you know? So autophagy is really, if you, have, if you think of a building, autophagy is the process of taking the building down. Mm-hmm. So autophagy itself is not really necessarily even that positive because it could take down the building, a good building, right? Mm-hmm. What we're talking about is much more a, a very sophisticated program they can really check everything and decide who survives, who's killed, mm-hmm. and 
cell-wise, and also inside of the cell, what survives and what's breaking down and removed. And then, once you refeed, decides, out of all things that are available, let's say all stem cells or all components, I pick you and you to give rise to the next generation of cells. For example, if you take a person and you starve it and you don't feed it for, let's say, seven days, the white blood cells, the immune system, will, the level will decline about 20 to 25%. And then you refeed, and then it goes back to normal within a couple of days, right? So, so this is a, a normal fluctuation. You're not really in danger of, of immunosuppression. But then what we see, at least in the mouse studies, is that few, certain stem cells get selected in the hematopoietic system, the bone marrow, and those are the ones that give rise to this rebuilding of immune, of, of immune cells. Now, for example, in a multiple sclerosis study that we did, we saw that the killing occurs, uh, the autoimmune cells are killed, then the hematopoietic stem cells is turned on, and when it rebuilds it, it does not rebuild autoimmune cells, it rebuilds immune cells that are fully functional. Wow. So what I know that you've done and are in the process of doing many clinical trials, some of which I'm sure you can talk about and some of which you can't, but what are you looking at in conjunction with fasting or fa the fasting mimicking diet and what's sort of already out there in the world? Yeah. So we published about five or six trials already. And one of them was on, on regular people, uh, 20 to 70 years of age. And we did three cycles at USC. And in trial, on 100 uh, patients, subjects, they were not patients, uh, we saw improvement. You know, so something really interesting uh, is the abdominal fat is the reservoir, right? What we used to use during the summer when we overate sugars so we could survive in the winter. Mm -hmm. And so, not surprisingly, the, this fasting-making diet goes after this abdominal reservoir first and it has minimal effect on the muscle, and then the muscle re-expands, and the fat, of course, doesn't come back. So that's already a very interesting change that we see affecting insulin resistance. And then we saw reduction in cholesterol, reduction in blood pressure, reduction in fasting uh, glucose, reduction in systemic inflammation, C-reactive protein came down in most of the subjects. So consistent with what we had known for the mice, we really see a reset, a clear reset. Everything is moving back to a more functional state. And uh, you know, with that, we think it's also going to be the disease risk. Mm -hmm. And so you've looked at it then with cancer in conjunction with chemo. I don't know if you can Yeah, then we did a trial on, on um, you know, multiple sclerosis. And that was you know early trial, about 60 patients looked promising. And now we're doing a multi-center trial in Europe on multiple sclerosis. Then we finished uh, four trials on cancer, and those were all uh, you know, positive. They were small, but positive. For example, the last one was in a Charité hospital in Berlin, women with ovarian cancer and breast cancer. And so they were doing the chemotherapy either with or without the uh, fasting-mimicking diet. And uh, in those that they used the fasting-mimicking diet did not show a decrease in the quality of life, meaning that they were doing fairly well side effects-wise, and the, the, their quality of life did not decline. And those on the normal diet showed a, a chemotherapy-dependent uh, uh, set of side effects. And now we're about to publish uh, three trials this year, and those are much more focused on how effective was the chemotherapy against breast cancer and all kinds of other cancers. I cannot discuss it, but let's say that, that they were not negative. Not negative. Okay, we'll take it. And it's interesting because you think that if someone's going through chemo, you want to nourish that. I think it's sort of like our like showing love with food. You'd think that you want to, you know, really 
feed people, but yeah. Yeah, keep, keep in mind, you know, uh, and this is a, a big misconception, right? You want to feed people, and we, we've spent a lot of time fighting in the... Of course, we're collaborating with some of the top cancer centers in the world, MD Anderson, you know, Mayo Clinic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the misconception is that, you know, you have to overfeed the patient. And if you think about cancer, cancer has evolved with excess food, right? So mm -hmm. the only cell that really needs lots of food is the cancer cell. Mm -hmm. Our cells, you know, our body can go without food for a couple of months, right? So cancer cells cannot go without food for more than a couple of days. Why? By definition, cancer cells are re rebelling cells. Mm -hmm. They're disobeying orders, including the order of, I'm starving, stop. Right? They don't understand that. And so that's the description, that's the definition of a cancer cell, disobedient to anti-growth order. So, yeah, so when you do that, when you keep uh, eating a lot, let's say lots of um, amino acids, lots of proteins, lots of sugar, et cetera, et cetera, what you feed the most is the cancer cell. And everything else is fine without it. So, yeah, so then we're saying do the opposite, decrease the lots of ingredients that normal cells are fine without, and then hit the, uh, the cancer with the standard of care, which could be immunotherapy, it could be chemotherapy, it could be radiotherapy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I know just from my conversations with you that there's sort of a fine line, right? Like there are, a lot, there are negative health consequences clearly from being malnourished and not eating enough. And I know you're, that the fasting mimicking diet is a way to sort of trick the body into thinking it's fasting while getting some, you know, the basic nutrients and calories required. As you think about that and of people doing potentially fringe things. Like I know people who love water cleansing, which freaks me for like 21 days, which sounds terrifying. What do you, on a normal day, like how many calories do you think that we should all be consuming within that 12 hour window? But yeah, I mean, yeah. In terms of longevity. Like there's two different questions. You know, one is about the everyday diet. One is about, you know, the fasting mimicking diet, mm -hmm. you know, either done in an improvised way or, or in the way that we tested it clinically. I mean, my uh, suggestion is do what's been tested clinically. Uh, the FDA is not there by mistake, you know. Why do we have a Food and Drug Administration? I mean, I mean I can we can argue about lots of drugs maybe not being ideal, but certainly the system is there to protect you first mm -hmm. and, and making sure that, you know, there is not something that is going to hurt you. Now, let's say that you do a, a one-week water-only fasting. That one week of water-only fasting will revolutionize your genes more than anything that you can imagine, including taking a cocktail of heavy drugs and just eating them all day long. So, so now imagine that, right? So you're going home and just coming up with something that is going to completely change your brain metabolism, your liver metabolism, everything. And now you could be fine many times, right? And you could be fine 20 times. And then the 21st time is when you have a big problem. Mm -hmm. And the big problem, you know, could be a very scary big problem, right? So this is why we're saying it's, you know, I, and again, I don't make a penny out of any of this, but we always said you, we need to make sure that it's been tested. For example, now Prolon, fasting mimicking diet, has been tested on 200,000 people. And now we have the reports from the doctors, we have the reports from the patients, and the side effects have been really minimal. So, yeah, I, I would say that's a good compromise mm -hmm. uh, to drugs, right? To do, right. do it the correct way. It's a little bit of, of investment, but very little. Most people, we're talking about, you know, maybe $500 a year. 
And so I would say that's a good uh, way to invest money. Yeah, then the, the, the question about what do you eat every day, we hear a lot of, a lot of diets and, and, and things that, that are out there. And some are low carb and some are high protein. Uh, the, the ideal diet we seem to be, it seems to be the, the pescatarian diet where fish or meat, but preferably fish, is eaten uh, for two meals a week. That seems to be ideal. Vegan is fine if you really pay attention to everything, but uh, most people that become vegan will have some deficiency eventually. It's not easy to be vegan. You can be vegan, but it's not easy. So if you, for, for ethical reasons, you, you're going to be vegan, then fine, but then pay attention to everything you do because you, you're really risking uh, becoming malnourished. Now, if you add the fish, certain fish like low mercury, the salmon, the, the, the anchovies, et cetera, et cetera, you're at much lower risk of, of becoming malnourished, and usually people do better. And there's very few negative studies on fish, although now fish is getting more and more polluted. Mm -hmm. So uh, obviously we're going to have to try to be more and more selective on what you get and where does it come from and who's, who's tested it. Then we see that the low-protein diet all the way to age 65 or 70 is ideal, so keep it. But if you have a vegan pescatarian diet, that sort of takes care of itself because it's very hard to eat too much protein being vegan, pescatarian. And so the ideal is about 0.35 grams per pound of body weight. So somebody weighs 100 pounds, it's about 35 grams of protein per day. And uh, yeah, then the 12 hours, we already discussed it. And, uh, uh, you know, of course, lots of, lots of vegetables, lots of legumes, and uh, progressive too. You know, people sometimes, they go from eating meat to eat a ton of legumes, and they can give you problems, you know. And so it's better to start very slow and change one, things one, one at a time mm -hmm. until uh, you feel okay. So, for example, your, your gut uh, microbes, they need time to get used to these new ingredients. And so it could take three or four months for the, for the gut to, uh, for the mic microbes to change so that they can process all the new foods that you ingest. Do you sort of, does the keto craze, particularly the, the keto diets that are not at all plant-based, does that just drive you crazy? I mean, that, that, is, that can't possibly be good for longevity, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, the keto diet, if you look at the animal studies, the epidemiological studies and, and uh, you know, the centenarians, for, for example, I always say I, I went around the world meeting lots of centenarians. I've never met a single centenarian that was on a keto diet mm -hmm. for life, right, or on a low-carb diet. And then if you look at the epidemiological data, so the big studies of populations over and over and over. In fact, one study that was published in Lancet just a year ago showed that it's better to have an 80, for lifespan, it's better to have an 80% carbohydrate diet than to have a low-carb diet. Mm. Now, what happens, though, is people that are on a low-carb diet lose weight. Yeah. Right? So then they, and, and they lose weight for a good reason. So that tells you you're eating too much carbohydrate. So, you know, and for example, now we, I, I published a new book in Italy for children's diet. And it turns out the Italian children now eat half a kilogram a day. So one pound a day of high-starch food, you know, which is very excessive, right? So, so then what we do, we... We take that, which is a problem, and we go to the other problem, the other side. It's like low carb, right? So we got super high starch diet to a low carb diet. Right. And so both of them are, are a problem. Instead of saying, okay, um, you know, the, 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 the child as well as the family is eating a pound a day of pasta, bread, uh, potatoes. Why don't we go from a pound a day to 
you know, 20% less, right? right. That could already be, if you are good about it and you watch yourself, that should already be enough to go back to the ideal weight. I mean, I've been using that technique for many years and, and I've been making pe- many, many people do that. And so that works. Yeah, so don't confuse a high starch diet with a high carbohydrate diet that is bad for you. So reduce the carb to a good level and then stay in, let's say, 60, 30, 10, 60% carbohydrate, calories from carbohydrate, 30 from fats, good fats, mm-hmm. nuts, olive oil, et cetera, salmon, and 10% proteins. Got it. So, yeah, we've all been trained to like more protein. I mean, that's why there's so much gluten in our bread, right? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 uh, to me, it was unbelievable. Italian children, and I'm, I'm positive soon enough I'll release the same book in the United States. Italian children eat three to four times more protein than recommended by all pediatric societies in the world. Mm-hmm. And so the, it's not 20% more, it's three to four times as much as is recommended by pediatricians. And almost the, the unbelievable thing in Italy was nobody knew this. Right. Uh, yeah, so. yeah, no, it's, there's so much. I mean, we get it all the time, obviously, like so much diet confusion. What is, what is it appropriate to weigh? You know, what is, how are we supposed to feel? I think we've all just sort of lost our center. And so it's, it feels like a struggle in one way or another. You're trying to be thinner than maybe you're intended to be or the opposite, where you're sort of unable to control your weight. And where do you think that correlation is in terms of weight and longevity? Like how directly are they attached? Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, people that go too low of a weight live shorter, right? So you, you really have a U-shaped curve. And so as you're, pushing, as you're pushing yourself to BMI 18 or 17, clearly you're starting to have problems. So, you know, for example, in male, a BMI, a body mass index of about 22.5 is ideal and women is a little bit lower. So, yeah, I think it's, it's uh, important to be well-nourished, but try to get as, as close as possible to the ideal weight and, you know, and take your time doing it. There's, it's not a race. You can, you know, I think it's perfectly fine to say I'm going to take two years mm-hmm. to get to the weight that, that um, is ideal for me. And all it takes is like a, a measure and a, and a scale. And, you know, some people have argued with us about this. And I, I think we looked at lots of studies and that works, you know. Uh, it's part of your health. It's part of your life. You know, I think it's perfectly fine to say let's not exaggerate it. Let's not go to an anorexic state, but let's go to a good place mm-hmm. where I can be healthy and, uh, and stay there, you know. We'll get back to Walter Longo in just a second. Here at Goop, sex is one of our favorite topics to talk about. On this podcast and over on the Goop site, we spend a lot of time asking questions and thinking about women's sexuality. There's still so much shame around sexuality, particularly for women, when it really is one of our greatest life forces. From talking to many women and therapists, doctors, and sexuality educators, we've seen that there are so many ways to express our sexuality. And for some, lingerie is a part of that, even if no one else is going to see it. Flirt Mall, founded by Jennifer Zuccarini, is a woman's lingerie and ready-to-wear brand that has been stocked in the Goop sex shop forever. Jennifer's mission is to support a woman's strength, confidence, and sexuality with fiercely feminine lingerie and clothing. She believes in celebrating the art of dressing up and undressing. Each Fleur de Mal piece is beautiful, 
They're made with high-quality, luxurious fabrics like French Lever's lace and silk, and the brand designs everything from silk tuxedo pants to slinky dresses, one-piece bathing suits, and bras. To shop it all and get 15% off site-wide, head to fleurdemall.com and use Fleur Loves Goop. That's F-L-E-U-R-L-O-V-E-S-G-O-O-P. We're always trading new recipes and nutrition hacks at Goop, and walking through our staff kitchen around noon is a great way to see who can out-lunch each other. Not that it's a competition or anything, but one thing pretty much everyone at the office can agree on is that the ideal lunch requires minimal preparation, is enjoyable to eat, and still nutritious. Daily Harvest is on a mission to make good food that fits into our modern and busy lives. They deliver thoughtfully sourced, chef-crafted food to your door with organic fruits and vegetables at the base. Everything requires five minutes or less of prep time so you can eat nutritious foods and keep it convenient. Daily Harvest works directly with farmers to source quality organic fruits and vegetables, and then they freeze them to lock in nutrients. Their in-house chef and nutritionist uses these ingredients to make more than 65 different soups, smoothies, opals, and other snacks. We've tried many ourselves, and you can too, if you head to dailyharvest.com. Just enter code GOOP25 to get $25 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com and use code GOOP25. Back to my chat with Walter Longo. You brought up drugs, and I know you're not a huge fan of many drugs or supplements. Certainly in Los Angeles, and I don't know if it's happening in, in San Francisco, but there are a lot of people on metformin, which is known for, it's a, a drug for diabetics that is also apparently really good for longevity. Do you have thoughts about this? I mean, yeah, it's not really good for longevity because even a mouse, you barely extend the lifespan of a mouse with metformin, right? So, so there is really no data indicating that it's very good for longevity. I call it a band-aid approach, right? So, so, you know, you overeat, you become insulin resistant, and then you take a band-aid approach, you take a drug that blocks mitochondrial activity, it blocks liver function, and it reduces your glucose. That's not a healthy way of doing things, you know. Now, it can help you because it's probably better than nothing to have a diabetic person, but I really think that people and the doctors, and that's what we're trying to do. Now we have a documentary that we're doing for, for, them, for my foundation, and we're trying to basically say, you know, you really gotta, uh, we gotta convince the doctor to be the ones that say, bring your body back to where it needs to be, you know? Mm-hmm. Bring your liver function back to where it needs to be. And why are the muscle insulin resistant? Well, because you, you have too much uh, you know, visceral adiposity, so too much fat in a certain area. So you have to you know, use the fasting mimicking diet and, and, and the diet that I just described to go back to where you don't need metformin. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not that hard. I mean, if you think of our trial, I would say out of 100 subjects, maybe 20 or 25, could have taken metformin. And almost all of them, after two months, three cycles in two months, went back to, uh, to the normal state, right? So it wasn't, it wasn't like we told them, do something crazy and, you know, and revolutionize your diet. We say, don't change anything. Exercise the way you used to exercise, eat the way you used to eat. Just take this box, do this three times in, in five days a month for three months, and that's it, you know? So I think that, you know, that plus small changes, like I was saying, if you eat half, uh, you know, a pound a day of starches, can you go to 400 grams instead of 
instead of you know 500. Mm -hmm. So it's a 20% decrease, and it's not a big big change. And uh, you know, so the, the the combination of these two things, I think, can keep you away from most drugs. And so you mentioned BMI and this idea of like being where you should be or what's normal. Is that the best? measure? Like, what are the labs that people should be looking at to determine what's appropriate? And is it understanding your chronological age? Is it a more complex? Yeah, I mean, the, the BMI body mass index, which you can calculate in many, many sites, and then the uh, waist circumference, you know, just take a measure and, and, and see where you are in, compared to the ideal. That's good. Then, of course, uh, you can be, uh, that could be perfect. Uh, or, or not, and they may not reflect your cholesterol level, it may not reflect your, your IGF-1 level, et cetera, et cetera. So the ideal thing, we're you know, starting soon a, a foundation clinic in, Lo in Los Angeles, and we're going to start looking at some of these measurements like biological age, but also these panels of many different markers that can help you decide you know, what, what problems you have and and what could you do to, uh, to get better? But the idea is really, if you intervene on the aging process, I mean, almost all these problems are driven by a single thing, aging, right? right. And, and so the, our point has always been treat aging. But work on the longevity program, everything else is gonna go along with it. If you truly get into us uh, maximum health, whatever you can do, I mean, and not everybody's gonna be able to get to the same level, but if you get to the maximum uh, health, uh, you know, longevity program status, you, you're going to eliminate lots of these problems. Yeah. I was talking to, we were talking about this backstage, but I was talking to David Sinclair, who I know is your friend and peer and another longevity science, and his book is fascinating as well. And he was, 57% of our sort of medical inter inventions and drugs come from America, yet our sort of health span is falling behind many other countries, particularly countries in the East, and we spend dramatically more. We spend like $10,000 per person in the US, and I think in China they spend like $700 per person. Yeah. So we're, we're sort of, I think we probably all know this, we're really good at symptom control. I mean, we're not really that good at it because everyone has like four chronic diseases by the time they're 70, but we're really good at that and not good at preventing it. So in your mind, is like this what you do so that you can have a healthy lifespan that, and then you just die healthy? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, you know, we, we've been trying to sort of match, uh, I mean, Silicon Valley particularly has been about biohacking everything, right? So, and, and we're, we're, we're biohackers, right? The fasting making diet is biohacking. But we're saying you have to be very respectful of tradition, where we come from, you know. And so, for example, if you look at almost all religions, they have a fasting component. Why is that? Why do all of, all of a sudden all the religions pick this thing? Mm -hmm. And so it probably tells us that it's always been part of our history. And we have to be respect, respectful of this history. And, and so I think as you start doing this periodic fasting and you, as you go back to, let's say, eating for 12 hours and f fasting for 12 hours, which is, by the way, most of the centenarians have always done, right? Mm -hmm. It's very common for lots of centenarians to, to do 12-12. And it's very common also to maybe fast one day a week, et cetera. They, they may not have done the fasting-making diet, but, but they certainly, uh, it was not uncommon for them to have periods of fasting. Yeah, so I think... Uh, at the beginning, I always say it's kind of like the first time you go running. If you're going to do a 10K run and you never ran before, 
The first time is hell, right? It's very difficult. And the second time is much easier. You know, by the time you get to the fifth or sixth time, it's just not a big problem. Especially if you just run a couple of kilometers, you know, like one or two miles, no problem. Most people can say, after they run, you know, five or six miles a few times, then it's no problem. So yeah, then the fasting and the fasting making diet is, is the same. You gotta get exposed to it. And also these, you know, pescatarian type of diets. And at the beginning it's tough because you ate lots of hamburgers and meat and, and fried food, et cetera, et cetera. But as you, you know, one interesting thing, for example, the FMD, the prolonged FMD is 100% vegan, okay? And, and almost unanimously, the people that do it a few times will come back and say, you know what, I never thought I could do five days of a vegan diet. And then eventually I started getting used to, and I'm starting to seek this type of foods, right? So it's almost like an education, like the 10K run. The vegan ingredients educate the brain to say, okay, I felt so good on that food that I'm gonna try to go as much as possible in that direction, right? And this is without you know, any instructions that we gave people. So yeah, so I think that it's very important to try, do it, and then slowly be, allow yourself to go back to what traditionally is a very healthy uh, diet for you. People always, I'm like vegan, pescatarian, and people are like, that makes no sense. But so vegan plus fish, twice a week. A vegan plus fish uh, twice a week. And that's just, again, if you are a vegan because of, of ethical reasons, you can be vegan, no problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that uh, if you're looking at what the science and the clinical data shows to be the healthiest diet of all is eat fish a couple of times a week. And that seems to be by far associated with a, a better outcome. Now, vegans, if you look at the epidemiological studies, don't do very well against the people that eat lots of meat. Mm. And so maybe because you go from one extreme to the other. Right. So are you currently studying Alzheimer's as well and other neurodegenerative diseases? Or are those, is there a relation with fasting or unrelated? Yeah, no, absolutely. So we have already published years ago a very strong effect. When you, do, when you put the mice on the fasting-making diet, they become much sharper, they remember things better, they can find objects much more quickly. So and one reason for that, we're seeing uh, evidence for uh, neural stem cells being activated. So the brain starts making more stem cells. Um, but also the brain, uh, the metabolism of the brain completely changes. So it changes from using lots of sugar to using ketone bodies, you know, mm-hmm. the, the ketogenesis, right? So you've you heard about ketogenesis. So the brain is now using components of fat, essentially, as fuel. And so that rewiring, we think, has lots of uh, promise in Alzheimer's. So now we just started a clinical trial in, in Italy, a multi-center trial on 100 or so uh, Alzheimer's patients. They either have what's called MCI, mild cognitive impairment, or they have diagnosed Alzheimer's. We'll see what happens. but. You know, we're really pushing them in two ways. We, we give them the fasting mimicking diet for five days a month, and then we give them some uh, high good fat uh, supplements every day. Mm-hmm. So we really want to push the brain towards this metabolic alternative in the hope that, uh, that that's uh, associated with uh, cognitive uh, reversal of cognitive uh, impairment. But even if we could just keep it not g- from getting worse, you know, that will already be a yeah. big achievement. You know, obviously we live in a 
what can be a toxic environment and toxins are lipophilic and, and hang out in our fat. Do you think that there's any relationship between sort of longevity and health span and fasting and its ability to like burn that fat or is that not really relevant to the conversation? No, I think it is, and, and uh, we've been thinking also about the toxins, you know, so one, uh, several projects that we've been thinking about is like lead poisoning, et cetera, et cetera. And is it possible that the starvation is a moment where the body also can extract uh, heavy metals, et cetera, and then, I'll, you know, release them? We don't know yet, but there's certainly something that could happen, particularly when you start shrinking the cells. And, you know, that, that certainly seems to be a good moment to pick the, the ingredients that might be not only junk, might be, may be toxic to the cell mm-hmm. and, and, and get rid of them. Okay, so not a fan of metformin. Are there other things that you, like, I can never say this word, so I'm going to butcher it. Resveratrol. Resveratrol or NAD or NMN. Like, are there other things that you think are worth looking at? I mean, you know, David, you know, is a a friend and is a a Harvard uh, superstar. And so I would say read his book. And, and, uh, you know, if you you think that there is something that you feel is convincing in, in the book, I would say that, and, and I think David knows that they need to do more trials, right? They mm-hmm. need to do more monitoring, more. Uh, but I think it's got a lot, lots of potential mm-hmm. uh, for sure, especially the resveratrol. Resveratrol is something that, you know, you might have heard of. Uh, it's contained in wine. It's not very much in wine, so you will need like 10 bottles of wine a day to get. Uh, no problem. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it, resveratrol has been studied for a long time. So I would say that that's the safest but again, not enough data right now to, uh, to, for me to say, go ahead and take it. Right. I mean, the main figure in the book, who's sort of his guinea pig, is his father, who starts taking some of these drugs and then seems to sort of starts a second career. So that's an easy, sort of easy place to start. But I know that they're at sort of the beginning in terms of looking at it in mice, and maybe it's not as simple for 30 and 40-year-olds to begin experimenting on themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you always want to, and, and this is with everything, right? So you always, metformin included, which has been prescribed for 40 years now, you always want to sort of think of the worst-case scenario, and you want to say, you know, could I be one of, the, one of the two people out of 100 or five out of 100 that has very negative side effects because of this drug? Yeah, so that you, have, you always have to keep that in mind. So you have to, to evaluate what kind of problems are you trying to solve and could you end up being uh, you know, part of the side effect group and was it worth it? You know? I don't know if, if it makes you live till 120, maybe. Do you think that we're going to live until we're 120 someday soon? Well, I mean, I followed Emma Morano. She got to 117 and I'm, I followed Salvatore Caruso. He got to 110. So, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely a possibility. And by the way, they were both healthy by the time they, uh, they got to the end of life, meaning they were fairly independent and uh, no real problems, which is um, amazing. And uh, yeah, so I've seen it. It's doable, but it's, it's lots of work, mm-hmm. right? And it's lots of, unfortunately, I think Goop is, is doing a great job and you guys are doing a great job. But unfortunately, there's a lot of miscommunication out there. And so I think it's, it's very, very important, you know, to think about, you know, if you're going to buy a book on longevity, it's kind of like, it should be like a house, you know? 
you don't just go pick a house. I say, oh, I just pick this one. Yeah. yeah. It's just a process that might take you years, you know, to figure out. So, yeah, take the time to figure out who's really there um, to protect you, to get you there, who is an expert, who's not, uh, you know, what are they basing their opinion on? Is it just an opinion? Is it just about mice? Is there clinical data? I mean, this is why we, we discussed it before. I started my book by saying, you know, five pillars, you know, epidemiology, clinical studies, studies of centenarians, you know, studies of basic research and complex systems. So, yeah, so you want to have all these things and, and then they take the common denominator and then you make a decision. You know, if it makes sense based on all of them, the chance that next year is going to change or somebody's going to find out, oh, this is completely wrong. And for example, the centenarian pillar, right? That's one of the most important ones because, let's say, the low-carb diet, what I told you earlier, I've never seen a, a centenarian that is on a low-carb diet. That's already a very good you know, pillar and say, is it possible if it's so good for me that none of these people have ever used this low-carb diet? Yeah, so I think it's take your time, pick the, the, the right experts, uh, or it could be a group of experts, and uh, make sure that they're doing their job and make sure they're accountable. You know? mm. If I get it wrong or, or terribly wrong, I'm in trouble, right? So I'll, everybody knows that I, I kept saying something about, let's say, low protein. Or longer saying low protein up to 65 and then a higher protein. If somebody really proves me wrong on that, I'm, I'll be in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. Because now my credibility is just going down uh, tremendously because of the big mistake that I made, you know? So, yeah, so accountability is also very important. And if you look into it hard enough, I think you'll find uh, lots of people that are in that category, you know? Thanks for listening to my conversation with Walter Longo. You can check out his book, The Longevity Diet, or head to walterlongo.com for more about his work. That's V-A-L-T-E-R-L-O-N-G-O. And you can see more from him at goop.com slash the podcast. And if you want to try the whole fasting mimicking diet for yourself, you can order Prolon on the Goop site. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.